Welcome, 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 everyone, to Tech Cars Machines. And this time, it's going to be Tech Cars Robots. As you know, at Tech Cars Machines, we spend a lot of time talking about how sensors, connectivity, and software advances are changing the worlds of cars and machines. And in the case of cars, obviously, those cars already exist. And in the case of machines, we're typically talking about machines that already exist that are being influenced by advances in technology. But what classes of machines are uniquely enabled by some of the technologies we've talked about? Cameras, LIDAR, image recognition, autonomy, mobility. In what circumstances are customers actually paying for something made of this stuff and uniquely enabled because of this stuff? We've got a great example for you today. We're excited to bring you Nightscope. One word, night as in Teutonic Knights, and then scope, Nightscope. Nightscope makes security robots that roam the halls, parking lots, and facilities of a rapidly increasing number of large customer sites. And by that, I mean the customer sites of large entities. And these can be corporate headquarters. You can see it outside of Samsung headquarters in the Bay Area, malls, hospitals, casinos, and large institutions like that. Now, in the episode notes, we're going to link to pictures of the Nightscope robot, which are really kind of fascinating to take a look at. And I encourage you to uh, to take a look either via our links or via the company's website at what these entities actually look like. So what I'd like you to imagine a shape similar to Salesforce Tower in San Francisco or the Lipstick Building in London, also known as the Gherkin Building. Make that shape between three feet and five feet tall, depending on which model you're talking about. Make it out of white fiberglass and you have the basic shape of a Nightscope robot, specifically the K3 and the K5 uh, model numbers. These uh, units sit on wheels, and the wheels in these models, especially in the original K5, uh, K5 are somewhat hidden uh, behind the white shell as the shell drapes toward the ground. There are a number of openings on this white fiberglass exterior. It's a shiny white uh, fiberglass exterior. Generally, the openings are small and circular. There are a couple of mouth-like openings. Imagine the, the slit that's in the chess piece called the bishop, if you've ever played chess. And you have a couple of those openings, one along where the mouth would be or the face of this um, obelisk-like unit would be, and the other one along the belt line. While the units are generally smooth in shape, they're a little bit pointy-headed, so to speak. And that's because the very important LIDAR unit, which as we've discussed before, is a type of light-based radar system, and which itself is shaped like a thick puck, sits right on top of the K5 or the K3 units where it has the best vantage point, the highest elevation of the device to be able to monitor things around it. Nightscope refers to these things as autonomous data machines, and that's really quite descriptive. They go indoor, they go outdoor. Generally, they're able to map the area into which they're deployed automatically and therefore maneuver their, their way around um, sort of the expected layout of the environment as well as uh, unexpected entities or people or cars that might be uh, in the environment. And they generate a whole host of data, obviously live video, live audio, but also thermal detection. They're able to be remotely managed and um, many other features as well. Generally, by the way, the devices are autonomously recharging. They go find their own uh, charging unit and uh, basically charge themselves up and get back to work. The company was founded about five or six years ago. And about two years ago is when it started deploying its prototypes in the uh, in the field, and has been shipping production models for a little over a year or so. So let's go to the very determined and the very passionate founder of the company, Mr. William Santana Lee. And this interview was done at the company's headquarters in Mountain View, California. 
tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com. So, Bill, it's uh, so nice of you to take the time here. No, absolutely. Thanks for having us. So, Bill, I've followed you for a few years now, and I always felt you you were emotionally connected with the problem you're trying to solve, that it's run through a lot of things you've done. When I talk to you, you talk about the issue because you care about it, and then you came up with Nightscope to treat the issue. Uh, let's go back to the company's genesis and uh, answer the why and why at that time question. Why did you think about starting it, and what was right, especially from a technical perspective, for you to start Nightscope when you did? Sure. Well, I, part of it's personal, part of it's professional. One of the things that drives me from a professional perspective is I think self-driving technology, autonomous technology is going to turn the world completely upside down. And as an ex-Ford Motor Company executive, I, I know the space, I know what can happen and possibly what can't. And I think a lot of the big players that have these humongous R&D projects, it's going to take a very long time to properly commercialize it with not just the technical hurdles, but the regulatory insurance and legal frameworks required to put a 4,000-pound unmanned vehicle and bet your $100 billion brand that everything is going to be all right at 5 o'clock on Friday in Times Square. Because Nightscope, we're building these autonomous security robots and we're now scaling uh, nationwide. We've hold about contracts in 15 different states. We're the only company in the world that is scaling autonomous technology in the real world with real clients doing real work. And that gives you know investors an interesting way to get exposure to self-driving technology. So that's kind of the professional side of things. The personal side of things, let me start with our long-term mission is a little bit grandiose, which is to try to make the United States of America the safest country in the world and change everything for everyone. I was born in New York City. Someone hit my town on 9-11, and I'm still profoundly ticked off about it. And I'm dedicating the rest of my life to better securing this country. When we started the company back in 2013, so in a couple of weeks is going to be our five-year anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. So as you know, 95-plus percent of startups fail. 80% never make it to their uh, third anniversary. So we are going to have a little bit of cake and, and, and celebrate. <laughs> when we started, it was right now, if you look at self-driving and autonomous, it's, it's kind of hot. Robotics is hot. You know, it's all this AI fad stuff is hot. It's exactly what you said. Like Our clients have a problem. We want to fix it. I really don't care what technology is required to do that. And when we started the company, it, it took me 364 days to raise the seed round. Like no one wanted to do this, you know, something along the following. Uh, Bill, you're out of your mind. You know, this will never work. Two, you'll need $15 million to build the first prototype and it probably won't work. It's hardware and software. It's too difficult. You should pick one. And lastly, physical security is not an investment thesis. So go away. And we got the no after no after no. And so we did what most good entrepreneurs do is pretty much ignore everyone and just do, do what we said we're going to do. And so now we are scaling our operations, our clients, our corporate campuses, malls, manufacturing facilities. We put our first machine at an airport. We just signed our first casino. And we're operating 24-7 in, in four time zones. Um, it's been quite a ride. And uh, what we're doing is extremely difficult to have a an autonomous security robot patrol outdoors or indoors 24-7, generating 90 terabytes of data a year that we analyze for the obvious monitoring and surveillance, but also deter 
uh, a lot of negative behavior. But you're right, it's, we have and still do have a very focused mission, um, and nothing's going to stop us from doing what we intend to do. You touched on, obviously, the robot itself, but also a monitoring solution. Maybe just tell our listeners, what are you offering the customer? Is it a piece of equipment? Is it an outcome or something in between? I think we've got different clients with different needs. It's a very fragmented uh, marketplace. We have some clients that are looking to give their security teams really smart eyes and ears for them to do their jobs much more effectively. How do I cover more ground? How do I give my team some tools so they can cover more ground together with the machines? Um, We have some clients that have a genuine crime problem literally one to two criminal incidents a week, theft, assault, stolen vehicle, you name it. And then the third one is certainly a minority, despite all the media talking points, is purely on cost and how do I get rid of that guy? And so it's a a mixed bag, but uh, these machines, uh, the K5 that runs around outdoors, it's it's five foot tall, three foot wide, 400 pounds. So if you don't spend a lot of time on security, you realize that very simply, if I put a marked law enforcement vehicle in front of your home or your office, criminal behavior changes. Most of these guys, and they're mostly guys, aren't all that bright, and they're looking for a path of least resistance to just get away with something. You put a 400-pound machine there that's roaming around autonomously and people don't actually know what it does, that's going to deter a lot of negative behavior. So much so that in a lot of cases with our clients, you know, they've experienced one incident, two incidents a week, or what have you, put the machine there, it's literally gone down to zero. So we know that portion's effective. And then the other is, can you give me 360-degree eye-level streaming of HD video and, and record any uh, kind of detections that might be of interest to me? So let's say I'm a property manager. Between uh, 11 p.m. at night and 6 in the morning, there should be no one waltzing around our property. If you see someone, let me know. Or can you run a thermal scan in these certain environments because there's a high risk that that pipe might actually blow, this actually has occurred a few times, uh, where we've been able to, to, to help. We stopped a fraudulent you know, uh, insurance claim where someone said, I slipped and fell, and we have evidence that suggests otherwise. Um, <laughs> Thanks for a quick settlement. Yes. And you've also, you know, we've stopped the corporate vandal. Um, we've helped the law enforcement agency issue an arrest warrant for a sexual predator. We helped the security guards catch a thief. I mean, the list goes on and on where you can use technology and give the guards almost superhuman capabilities. It sounds like at this point you have enough deployments where you can actually evidence with almost a statistically relevant sample the crime reduction benefits of of your deployments. I guess to my shock and surprise, you know, be happy to report that we've had over a dozen crime fighting wins thus far with just the initial deployments we've done uh, to date, which to us is fascinating and now that we're having so we offer this on a machine as a service business model and now we're starting to get the renewals uh, coming in and it's always uh, you know fantastic to have clients not only experience the return on investment in terms of either cost reduction but they want to keep the machine because it's actually been very effective there seems to be a fairly good amount of before versus after data now that you can evidence in terms of this is what was happening before we were there and this is what's happening Especially for clients that are in uh, rough neighborhoods, let's put it that way, uh, where it's pretty obvious that we we can be helpful. Okay. All right. That's pretty impressive. And I think 
to go back a little bit to what you said about the role of autonomy and the applications of autonomy in the world, it's not clear that the really big changes will come really soon. But if you find the right application and the right solution, it's amazing how quickly, really starting five years ago, you've been able to make a difference, right? And we're still waiting for the cars to drive themselves, as an example. You know, today, there are a lot of regulatory requirements where folks working on self-driving cars need to actually have a human uh, inside the vehicle to take over because depending on what you believe, 30 to 70% of the time, the algorithms fail because they're not yet robust enough to be operating. Uh, and despite what people might think, there are no people inside of our machines. So we actually have to be right 24-7, 100% of the time. And to be able to do that and say, you know, we've operated more than 300,000 hours in the field with real customers and traveled collectively more than 150,000 miles. One of our machines has gone the distance of from San Francisco to New York and back twice over. So, I mean, we've got a lot of field experience to be able to do that. We're certainly one of the pioneers in, in commercializing autonomous technology. And, you know, it's, it's going to take some time to have that technology be able to mature that much more. But engineers are really good at solving problems with constrained boundary conditions. Exactly. Right? Very simply, we operate less than 25 miles an hour on private roads. Uh, we don't need any regulatory framework or some other you know conversation to allow us to to operate you know we were you know legal in all 50 states for us to do what we're doing but the challenge that everyone's going out aggressively and, and I'm listen I'm cheering them on I want them to succeed but you give a bunch of engineers you know here's a random location random environment random conditions random everything please go solve the problem and do it quickly I think it's going to take a little longer than people are really expect so you're going to see all this you know incremental improvements in the press release that someone built another prototype a press release that someone added a feature and you know incrementally over a decade or two you know something actually real might happen but it's going to take a long time and we know how difficult this can be because we're actually living it for real. Right, right. It, it's you different. as Nightscope know yeah. how difficult it, it can it's be. It's different to right. build a prototype or run something on a track or do something limited testing. It's a lot different to have an actual binding contract and have a paying client and need to know that you need to deliver 24-7. Here's the funny part. Hollywood has done a, us a, a service and a disservice, right, because... Most of our clients, the autonomous portion, which is fascinating to investors and fascinating to technologists and, and car buffs and the like, security folks don't care. Like, it's a robot. I've seen it on the movie screen. Obviously, it should be autonomous, mm -hmm. right? That's like just to even have start the conversation so they don't understand the pain and suffering to actually get to that point, right. Right. which is the hardest part. Like, okay, what else can it do for me, right? And that's where we really need to, to shine with, you know, actual capabilities and value that we can provide a client because in this particular case, the client doesn't care that it's autonomous. It's assumed that a robot can just, you know, go anywhere and do anything. And, um, you know, you've got some expectations versus reality <laughs> mismatch in the, in the short term, let's say. So Bill, maybe actually that's, that's an interesting point. Tell us what's under the hood. You know, when I first visited you here, we were talking about the 360 cameras, LIDARs, license plate scanners, and I don't know if those are necessarily independent features. But give us a little bit of a sense what's inside the box, and then maybe take us to uh, walk us through what a deployment would look like. 
you go there, maybe you LIDAR map the, the location, what do you, what do, you do, what, what, how do you train the individuals who are going to work with this thing? If you think that's an interesting thing to go through, please take us, uh, take sure. us there. Sure, um, it's analogous to a self-driving car. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're operating at different speeds and distances, and, and that makes a, actually a material difference on how you approach it, but it's a combination of LIDAR, sonar, uh, wheel encoders are similar to you know how your odometer works, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. accelerometers, and a bunch of crazy software to real-time dynamically map a, a location so we don't ingest blueprints or architectural renderings or anything like that. The machines uh, dynamically create their own map, and then they need to figure out how to dynamically find themselves in the map that they created. Uh, so that's a little bit of a, a trick. Uh, a lot of it has to do with probabilities, and we do hundreds of simultaneous equations of the probability that based on all the sensor input from all the variety of stuff that we get, out of the 504 calculations, are we all confident that we know where we are and we are in a certain orientation? And if there's nothing in the way, then I can move. That's kind of a very quick layman's explanation of how, how these work. But they're effectively self-driving cars, but uh, in my case, a, a little bit easier to, to build. If we don't have to worry about seats and, and airbags and you know glass and all kinds of other stuff I used to deal with in, in Detroit. In terms of deployments, uh, usually from signing of a contract, we tell most clients no more than 60 days to schedule and get stuff built and, and that sort of stuff. So the fastest deployment we've done was 48 hours, which is not the norm. <laughs> usually, probably uh, the more sane is uh, five to ten days, maybe five days on site, and it's also highly dependent on the location. So some of these deployments are very, very large. So we've got to kind of think through the whole thing. Uh, something as simple as you know, okay, where do we put the charge pad? And I know there's an outlet out there. Is does there actually power? <laughs> we also run on Wi-Fi and or LTE. And then you got to go through the dance of, well, is AT&T, Sprint, or Verizon, or T-Mobile great? Uh, and then people that don't have field experience wouldn't know this, but, you know, sometimes telecoms aren't consistent. Like, you, it's 5.05 in the morning, and in SoCal, you know, one of the telecoms is down. Like, we can't operate that way. So we actually have failover backups. So we've got... Sprint as the primary and Verizon as a secondary, or depending on what the signals look like in that area. So that kind of experience is really important to, to be able to, to do that. So it takes some time. And then in a lot of cases, uh, some of the time is the interaction with the clients, right? Because right. our primary client is typically the chief security officer. But because of the nature of the product and it's so new and everything else, it's actually interesting organizational behavior. Because the CFO wants to come down and understand the economics again. How much is this saving us? The CEO is fascinating with forward-looking technology. And then chief marketing officer shows up. It's like, hey, can we brand this thing? What can we do in terms of PR and messaging? Then the HR people come down. It's like, how do we explain or how do we share? Can we, we had one of our clients like make a custom cake and have a big thing about it. I think almost almost all the machines are branded and almost all of them have a name. Like they've name tags issued, employee badges issued. <laughs> one of our clients has a Twitter handle for the machine. The other one has an Instagram one. Another one built an entire website dedicated to their machine. It takes a whole life of its own. 
Uh, so that takes eats into some of the quote-unquote deployment time, right? If you got to go set up for the photo shoot uh, and the media and what have you. And then we come back and uh, we try to remotely take a few days to clean clean up some of the data that we gathered to get things to uh, to go for it. But now we've you know we've started to build our own tools because no one's ever done this before. So we have our huge deployment pre-deployment checklist that we go through before we sign a contract to make sure that we can actually do what we said we're going to go do. And then we have a huge deployment checklist of all the stuff that needs to get done and give status reports to where we are with the client so they have some visibility and transparency. And yeah, so now we're, uh, we're actually this week, we're adding uh, the mountain time zone. So we've got folks in, uh, in Colorado. Um, and so we've, we've got East Coast, we've got uh, Central, Mountain, and Pacific. So you've got basically a repeatable template, both from in terms of the device and its feature sets, as well as the deployment to yeah, yeah. rinse and repeat. Um, rinse and repeat, right. with the small exception that as we get into new verticals we or locations, you always learn something new at a different location. Like this is our first winter we went through, you know, uh, that, that brings some, some learnings with you. You know, different clients have different ways they communicate so we had to build some tools on how how the team interacts and so you know one of the things where we've been rinse and repeat as you say you know malls uh, kind of pretty custom uh, hospitals we've done a lot uh, manufacturing facilities and uh, yeah we got the point that we're starting to scale up and we've got some pretty large contracts in in the works uh, which is going to be a lot of rinsing and repeating excellent Excellent. That, that's great. One interesting thing that sort of occurred to me as I was listening, you, uh, listening to you say this, you're describing essentially a pretty welcoming approach by where these deployments are going. And then there's the part of what you can read in the news, which is about the robots are, are going to kill <laughs> us all. They're all coming here to That's kill right. us. To, to kill us all. And then there's the, there are the stories. That I don't know how much there are already to it the, at the SPCA and, and, and the mall. And oh, all that. yeah. Tell us about what you've learned about human-machine interaction, both maybe some of the features you build in to make sure these devices are both present a security posture, but at the same time aren't threatening to, to the good people. Uh, out there, how they avoid collisions with them, etc. But also just some of the things that are purely a social dynamic of how people get used to these machines and, and whether they do or not, and, and, and in what style do they wind up getting used to the presence of a 400-pound uh, so obelisk. Yeah, when we first started, probably the highest risk in the business was would, quote-unquote, society allow us to do this? Mm-hmm. And we were scared out of our minds. The first time we put a machine out in the field was May of fifteen. And we just sat back like, I don't know what's going to happen. And what was fascinating was it became like robot selfie time. Like it was a massive mag. It's definitely a kid magnet, um, which has its own challenges and opportunities, (laughs) which we've fixed. You know, we ended up with machines with lipstick on them, like girls kissing them, hugging them, Families driving four hours to go see a machine and, and take a family photo. I mean, it just never ending. And it's been, for the most part, extremely uh, positive and, and welcoming. Yeah, there's that lovely media talking point where XYZ technology is going to kill us. And every 15 years, we have the same ridiculous episode where 
when electricity first came out, obviously that's the work of the devil and that's going to get us killed. Then the first automobile went over some dirt road in Detroit and that thing is going to get us killed. Then the you know computer, the ATM, the internet, every 15 Skynet. years, Don't forget Skynet. Skynet, everything's <laughs> going to kill us. I would suggest that your listeners plot the employment levels from 1900 to 2018 and note the two dips in 29 and 2008. And I can probably assure you that that had neither of them had anything to do with technology. So this will continue. And, you know, to me, I'm, I'm the counterpoint person like guys, guys and gals. Let's get real here. Um, this technology is going to be profoundly helpful. Like, so let's fast forward and say today crime has a trillion dollar negative economic impact on the United States of America. It's a hidden tax. And for some reason, society says this is OK. You know, crime levels go down by X at some city and everyone's like, yeah, so we're all good. A trillion dollars a year. You're all good. Like I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't believe the founders of our country ever expected us to build a society where going to school, going to the mall, going to work, going to the movies came with the risk of literally being shot or killed. Like this is not acceptable. So let's fast forward and suspend reality for a moment. And let's say we're right. Nightscope's going to be able to help our country be one of the safest or the safest country in the world. Uh, and cut crime in half, let's just say. Talk to me about the impact on housing prices. Talk to me about the impact on insurance rates, the volatility of financial markets, the viability of someone's local business, the safety of your family. Like literally everything changes for everyone. And when that technology is pumping out at volume, that technology will not only be priceless for society, but be priceless for those investors, right? Because you've got a, a business model that actually can throw out a lot of cash flow, but is actually doing a lot of good for society while we're at it. And we can, you know, suspend all the ridiculous assertions of, you know, the machines are coming here to kill us or what have you. This technology allows people to be that much more effective. Has there ever been an injury as a result of your uh, your machinery? Uh, so we're pretty operating. transparent, folks. We, we've had three incidents, and I've assured our investors there will be a lot more. Mm -hmm. So as you know, I'm an ex-auto guy out of Detroit. You would agree with me that the auto industry is a mature industry, yeah? Mm -hmm. Right. 100 plus years. How many accidents occur every day? Uh, I don't know the number, but the number That's of fatalities is around 40,000 a year. 15,000 accidents occur a day right. in a very mature industry. Nightscope, we're in uncharted territory with autonomous security robots operating out in the wild 24-7. We've had three minor incidents, and people want to go focus on those. Well, I, I can, there are going to be more incidents because no one's ever done this before. You've not had the opportunity to have an autonomous machine running on a Saturday at a mall is a completely different experience than four o'clock in the morning at a hospital in a parking structure is very different than a manufacturing facility when the shift ends, right? And more stuff's going to happen. And all we can do is, okay, X happened. 
did you fix it? And then let's move on to the, the next bit. And in some cases, it's just basic algorithm stuff. Um, in one case, um, semi-humorous, but we had assumed uh, two years ago that in our algorithms, the earth would not move, meaning the floor would not move. Like you would think that would be like a sane maybe <laughs> assumption, right? So then we go to this location where it's all brick pavers, the just you know bricks as the as the flooring, and more than half of them are literally loose. Like you can go pick them up and and take them out of their slot, and so a robot might misjudge something because the quote unquote earth moved, meaning one of the the bricks turned the machine ninety degrees, or thinking it turned ninety degrees, right? So I mean that patch took us forty eight hours to fix. But obviously the assumption from two years ago that the earth wouldn't move was not valid, right? So I'm sure there's probably a handful or if not a lot more than that where things are going to continue, but we're going to make the technology more and more robust. And it's really important that we continue to operate in different environments because, again, as I mentioned, each deployment is very unique and very different. Let's talk a little bit about what's changed because you talked about it over a couple of years obviously there's some improvements you've made as you've learned more yeah we, we drop new software every two weeks new hardware every three to six months so there's a lot of version releases and upgrades uh, along the way for example i didn't hear you mention cameras was there a time when cameras were in the units and are no longer there are there changes in terms of the significant component technologies that have made sense to you over time no not not really okay. i mean we've gotten more efficient on uh, some things we've had to bring in-house to build that we used to have. We t we've taken stuff out. The feature's still there, but we've taken stuff out. So uh, let me give you a, a good example. So detecting a person or detecting a, or reading a license plate or something like that, that's a kind of known problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been solved uh, primarily with fixed cameras. So if you're doing some analysis and you're using a fixed camera, you're doing pixel differentiation and just saying, okay, the foreground's not moving, the background's not moving, the camera's not moving, this object came in and out, can you detect that? Well, in our case, it's a little bit more difficult. So the camera's moving, the foreground's moving, the background's moving, and the object moving. Now tell me that's that person, or tell me that is a plate. Yeah, we've had to bring stuff in-house to basically build stuff that uh, is more attuned to what our clients really need. Uh, as opposed to uh, taking stuff uh, out from what uh, from what you were asking, and is that basically a lidar-based uh, detection? In some cases, we use uh, multiple sensors to do something to do X. So, let's say a good example: a human would never walk down a hallway only using their ears, right? Uh, similarly, I'm not a big fan of you have X sensor and it's going to tell you everything about the world and everyone should invest in that one thingy because that's going to solve everything like this is beyond foolish to me right you, you really need to be thinking this through a little bit more holistically and looking at different sensor parameters what different things can be really effective in certain situations and perhaps combine that with other data to help confirm something so very crudely we don't do this yet, but just to make the, the point, the cameras can detect that this is a person, right? It would be really nice to just run the thermal scan as well, and it says 98 degrees. Now I'm a little bit even more confident that that's a person, right? Uh, that's a good example. Uh, great, great point. Thank you. One of the 
speaking of things that have sort of evolved over time, I remember a few years ago we, uh, when we were talking, it wasn't clear what the rationale for adoption would be. And there was a there was a potential that the rationale was going to be primarily cost reduction, you know, reduce the labor force security. That hasn't really turned out to be the case at all in terms of it being a prevalent reason for the adoption of your uh, uh, technology. Am I correct? You are correct now. Um, we'll, we'll see. Um, we're working about 100 contracts right now. A significant majority are how do I add security? I have exposure. I, I have limited budget. How can I do this efficiently? Um, we have two or three very large players that are really looking at genuine cost reductions. But now they've also realized that it's not just the cost reduction. Is These machines can do 10x what a human could ever possibly do. So to try to actually do the comparisons a little odd. Um, Give us some examples of those differences. So one of our about to be clients is 40,000 parking spaces and there you know we can read 1200 license plates a minute run it against the database if we're working with law enforcement we can run it against and tell uh, the NCIC database and tell you that vehicle stolen that's uh, that's a stolen plate or that vehicle's tied to a felon um, we can tell you that vehicle has been parked in that exact parking location for the last 17 hours and 57 minutes and 10 seconds we can blacklist, let's say you have a domestic dispute, the spouse keeps coming over causing all kinds of problems. We can obviously flag that plate. And there's no way a human could ever possibly keep track of all that stuff, process it, and then pinpoint exactly where you need to be looking, right? We're really focused on actionable intelligence. We don't want to be spitting out 90 terabytes of data to a, a user and go, hey, go figure this out, right? And let the let the machines do the monotonous, computationally heavy work and do it consistently, 24-7, will show up, no ifs, ands, or buts, no sick days, no any of that stuff. And then let the humans do the strategic work. Okay, well, I saw, I got this complaint, uh, looks like the spouse might be here, let me track that person down, let me call the other guard and, and go do whatever they need to do, right? That's not a, that's almost an apples and oranges discussion, right? Um, most humans can never do what these machines do. And these machines, in a lot of cases, would never be able to do what a human can do. But it really is very complimentary. Let me, um, uh, just to be respectful of your time, let me maybe ask you a little bit about money. In other words, what do you charge a roughly? financial the guy asking me about money? Uh, interview's <laughs> over. <laughs> I've, held, I've held myself back for, for quite a while. Couldn't do it anymore. Uh, the medicine wore off. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah. um, what do you charge for your service, list prices, whatever you're comfortable with sharing? And tell us about the, the fairly unique way you've chosen to finance the business. Where a business is going to end up scaling and ramping very nicely is when there's the intersection of kind of value for the client, a price point that's attractive for the firm. Uh, they can generate you know, value for both the client and the, and the company. So this technology is brand new. You know, Back in Detroit, we used to sell a lot of hardware at prices that we can barely cover our cost of capital. And I don't want to repeat that movie. So uh, we offer, Nightscope offers its technology and a machine as a service business model. 
if you want a, uh, an armed law enforcement officer off duty, depending on what part of the country you live, plus or minus your 85 bucks an hour. If you want a security guard, again, plus or minus the regions, because uh, you know cost of living can be very different across the country. But you're looking on average plus or minus 25 bucks an hour. Mind you, that's not it's not the guard's salary. It's what the the client is actually having to pay. So you're you're you know you need to pay the the guarding company or what have you. Um, so let's loosely say it's 25 bucks an hour. Uh, we offer this on a machine as a service business model. We sign one, two, or three year contracts, uh, depending on which machine. Uh, so we have several. Um, it can range somewhere just north of $6 an hour to uh, tops out of maybe fully loaded with all the features at about $12 an hour. So you've got a significant cost reduction where you could possibly pay that guard uh, even more money uh, and get uh, someone more highly skilled or more engaged. You know, the security industry is about 100 to 400 percent employee turnover rates. The jobs are almost untenable because no human necessarily wants to sit there at three o'clock in the morning twiddling their thumbs where 98 percent of the time there's literally nothing going on where a machine could be a, a little bit more productive. So, you know, at, at six or 12 bucks an hour, it, it can be very cost effective uh, for, uh, for, the, uh, for the client. Now, how's that attractive for us uh, as Nightscope and our investors? Well, if you kind of loosely uh, or run 24-7, so the contracts are somewhere in the you know, seventy to $98,000 a year. Per unit? Per right. machine. And our, today, with no economies of scale, no efficiencies, no design efficiencies, la, 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 you know, plus or minus the bill of material on one of the machines is around sixty grand, right? So can you cover, recover the variable cost of the machine in the first calendar year, one or another? About 30% of our clients prepay the, the contracts, which is nice from a cash flow standpoint. And then as an ex-auto guy, when I make sure these last for five years in service or you know, a few hundred thousand miles uh, in service. So you recover the variable cost in the first calendar year, then the second, third, fourth, fifth year, you're basically printing money you are needing obviously to do the upkeep and make sure all maintenance and operating stuff is, is working well, but you've funded an asset that now is generating uh, some nice revenue stream downstream. And uh, you wanna be very efficient on how you finance that because all of our clients are credit worthy folks, right? So most lenders will look at that and go, okay, well, I don't think XYZ Fortune 500 company is going to renege on the contract. I have this asset here. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll lend you the 60 grand for 18 months or what have you um, at some de minimis interest level. And so now you can take the debt and fund the assets and then take our precious equity and use that for R&D and, and SG&A and, and you know, growing the, the, the rest of the company so we can be very efficient with the, with the capital. To date, uh, we just closed our fourth round of funding, so we've raised $40 million in equity. Incredible. I would love to challenge anyone to go up and down Silicon Valley and see who's been the most efficient with their capital for the type of business that we're building, right? Uh, we've been very mindful and careful with our investors' money. Um, and we're not the guys to like, oh, well, there's always going to be, you know, another huge equity round and just, you know, keep, keep burning money till, you know, till, uh, till it runs out probably. 
And so that's, we're trying to be very careful to be more, much more conservative and methodical about growing the business. And I, I don't like the hockey stick or step function business plans like voila, tomorrow there's going to be a thousand machines and we're just going to burn through 500 million bucks and we'll figure it out later. Like I'm not interested. Um, this is already really difficult and we need to be very thoughtful on how do we execute. So our, our big focus right now is scaling the company and making sure our clients are happy and continue to better the technology. We've got a lot of more stuff coming in the pipeline um, so we can actually f help fix our clients' problems. If I recall correctly, it was mainly strategic capital and then smaller investors that, are, that have helped you come this far. Uh, so we have four corporate VCs and we've got uh, now nearly 6,000 investors. Uh, we did the largest Reg A plus mini IPO in, in history. For those of you who don't know, the federal government changed some rules that allow private companies to do a public offering but remain private, so the stock's not trading anywhere. Every six months now we have to have the uh, SEC filings and, and audits and, and all that good stuff. So it's like a stepping stone to, to a full public offering. And so put some good disciplines and, and controls uh, needed within the company. It provides a good amount of transparency. But one of the things I love is our investor base. Like, we have folks that are chief security officers at major firms or vice presidents of leasing at major facilities or ex-Department of Homeland, ex-FBI, ex-NYPD folks. I mean, we got all kinds of friends now um, that are literally invested in the company's success nationwide. I think that's a, a good stepping stone. And, you know, I'm probably one of the few and only folks that have raised $40 million of equity in Silicon Valley, and I'm still the sole director, which is going to be an interesting and exciting opportunity for a founder to be able to architect the right board of directors for the right and appropriate uh, level of governance. So I'm starting to recruit the four independent directors that I want to make sure can, you know, stick with the company for 5, 10, 15 years can have the, rec the right skills, be it customer facing in the security side of things, be it a technologist, probably on the data side of things, possibly, uh, certainly someone that uh, the SEC would view as a financial expert to be the chair of the audit committee, and then a, a successful founder who's sat in this chair and has been through this hell. I'm sure I'm in the very uh, single digit min minority in, in this opinion, but in this particular case, I've got the authority then to pick the, a diverse board in thought, in gender, in race. So there are actually no VCs on our cap table. You know, it's interesting, uh, Bill, you, you talked about how in the first uh, year or so, how difficult it was to convince anybody that any component of the business model would work. And you've proven everybody wrong. What's interesting is I don't think anybody would have bet that you could pull off the financing approach you had? We've always, always been pretty much oversubscribed. I think the last round we ended up, don't quote me here, 123, 128 million post money. I got nearly 6,000 people put their money uh, where their mouth is and bought in at three bucks a share or the last folks came in at 350 a share. So I think the market set the price. But Ali, the reason why, one of the other reasons why I did this is, let's go back to where we started. What's the long-term mission? If we want to make the United States of America the safest country in the world, change everything for everyone, this is going to take a long time. This is a 10, 20, 30 year commitment, long-term capital that is focused on the mission 
and we've got a good running start to what we're doing. So all the theory of having a physical deterrence or the theory that robotics and autonomous technology and sensors and data can actually help is no longer theory, it's reality. And so now the thing is to find you know, the next group of, of folks that want to make sure the company can scale and, and grow the company properly and a, a bit differently than most startups have grown. You know, I would have never guessed you'd be able to pull off many of those, if, and now you've pulled off all of those, right? That's pretty startling. And that's why you're the entrepreneur. And the rest <laughs> of us are sitting, at, you know, at a, <laughs> we've had a, in a different hey, spot. Listen, we've had a lot of help along the way, you know, yourself included. You've yeah, been you. very kind to invite us to some events, met some folks. We've got some awesome investors who take time out of the day to introduce us to new clients or recruits or other investors or, hey, you should really talk to this person or... You know, we've got a, I don't want to say kitchen cabinet, but we've got, you know, a few investors that are so thoughtful, who've been around the block, who often reach out and like, just, hey, how you doing is, what about this? Did you think of this? Or, you know, if it's okay, I'm happy to take a look at that term sheet you just got. And, you know, we're, we're surrounded by some really passionate people that want to help. Like this is, as much as Silicon Valley likes to build up the, the CEO and, she or he did the whole thing like i've got a kick-ass team downstairs that are a bunch of crazy engineers that are determined patriots who really want to get this done we've got ex-marines downstairs we've got ex-law enforcement ex-navy um, air force army i mean we have some serious people here we're not playing around i think that's what most of the investors bet on like do you believe in the technology? Do you believe there's a market there? And do you trust the management team to execute? And God forbid something goes wrong, they're smart enough to go figure it out. That's a simple bet. At this point in the conversation, we moved our discussion outdoors and spoke for a few minutes in the presence of a K-5 unit that patrols Nightscope's parking lot. We then headed inside for a tour of the network operating center, the manufacturing floor, and a prototyping area. As we move from inside to outside, we walk by a stationary model, the K1, which startles me by saying hello. It's not on the recording, but on my way out after finishing up, the driver who picked me up was startled when the parking lot K5 yelled, Good afternoon, after it saw me leaving. These need to, you know, be acceptable in, in you know, an open society, but uh, second, it's also a psychological deterrent, right? You're trying to use all the senses, uh, what you see, what you hear, what you see happening um, is going to deter a lot of negative behavior. We can obviously, uh, we didn't talk about this earlier, but you can also, as a security guard, you can use the machine as a, uh, as a uh, mobile PA system. So God forbid there's a live shooter situation, you can speak through a machine or all 50 machines at one time. You can press the button on the top of the machine and have a two-way intercom call uh, with the security operations center. The machine can also announce stuff either randomly or manually. Actually, in one case, we've had to, for the pre-recorded messages, we've had to uh, put them in Spanish as well. So the guards <laughs> could, could announce stuff. We can have the, uh, depending on the client, some want a male voice, some want a female voice, depending on what they name the machine. So there's all, you know, and we're just, we're just getting started, right? There's the really hard part was getting the autonomous stuff to work consistently. 
I guess we talked earlier, Saturday at a mall uh, or a parking structure or, you know, a busy parking lot can be, you know, pretty challenging. And it might be easy to run a 30-minute demo, but you need to do that for, you know, 24-7s, a whole other a whole other game. But as we add more and more detection capabilities, we're also working on a concierge feature that allows a human to have a two-way dialogue with the machine. That can also be helpful. It's a little bit of a science project that we're working on, but the, the concept of doing a concealed weapon detection to be able to detect if someone's concealing a weapon in an area that they shouldn't is also something that's going to be very valuable for some of our clients. We want these machines in the long term to be able to see, feel, hear, and smell um, and gather all that data and be able to figure out what is quote-unquote normal and, and abnormal in an environment and anything that's abnormal better let the humans know so they can go do the enforcement aspect of it. That's pretty impressive. Let me ask you, uh, has this unit mapped this area itself? Uh, so the machines map the area. A human would guide the machine uh, oh, around. Oh, so I see, I see. Um, and then we might demarcate certain areas like, okay, don't go in the lake, don't go in the street, you know, don't go over this, you know, humongous pothole. Uh, but other than that, it needs to dynamically plan and replan. You know, some of the environments we operate in, you know, an 18-wheeler truck will just show up and plot itself there, or a mass of 50 people will come out at one time, or we're at a, a major stadium. You imagine when an event comes out. Um, so you got to be able to, to do that and do it dynamically. What are all the various openings and uh, circular features? Well, that's a new new feature we're uh, announcing today. It's an ATM. You heard can it? Actually oh, just they heard it here first. You can just stick your card here, and uh, we'll, we'll take it. No, just kidding. Um, so the, uh, the idea with the lights is also visual indication. The future model that we're working on will have um, a, a little bit more lighting that's similar in nature to a car or a truck, so that people know that you know the machine's stopping or in some cases, we've got it set up where uh, there's a certain um, orange or red alert. The, the lights will actually turn on if the guard hasn't, you know, possibly looking at their phone or, or the like. So they can be used for a variety of aspects um, or, you know, when, when the machine might be speaking to you, it can also be an indicator. It's pretty impressive. Where there has been one of those, uh, I think you mentioned three incidents, What's been the renewal rate for those clients? For two of the three incidents, we're looking either at coming back or having a different location. So we're always very transparent with kind of what happens so uh, they have a full understanding. I think one of the locations, the terrain wasn't a good place to put it. So, you know, let's put it somewhere else, you know. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting as as we we uh, we scale up. But I think one one of the concerns from the earlier clients were, you know, will this work and, and can you scale? When we were just before 2017, we we're operating in California only. All right, we're here at Nightscope headquarters in, in Mountain View, in the heart of Silicon Valley, and you know the first time we ever put out a machine here at our own headquarters. We all pulled all-nighters, sleeping inside the building and doing shifts, right? Because we've never done this before. I think that first few deployments were bloody painful. I think for four months, someone on the team or half the company pulled consecutive all-nighters. 
for four months oh trying to keep God. those machines running. That was a bloody painful experience. That was in 2015. Uh, those were version 2.0 machines wow. and it was uh, so we got smart, <laughs> quickly released a version 3.0. Uh, and that's what we've been building on. We're in this one that's patrolling here is version 3.7. That has a lot of uh, upgrades and capabilities uh, and improvements in navigation and stability uh, and the like. But at some point, we needed to go home, right? right? Then we got a few working up here in Northern California. And then one day we're like, hey, so let's put one in San Diego. And the team turned pale. Well, how are we going to do X? Right? We well, have to pull the Band-Aid off or you're never going to be able to figure out how to get this to work. And then we got brave and went outside of California. And so now we're in, you know, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Florida, Kentucky, Mississippi, Texas, Washington State. I mean, we're just uh, putting one in Colorado this week. And, you know, you start learning. Hey, someone forgot to make the change for the time zone, right? It's like basic stuff. We're in a parking lot here and the K5 is going up and down the, the path a car would use for egress. If a car pulls out, will it move out of the way? So that's a good example, building on what I was just talking about experience. So we have an early version of a car backup detection algorithm. So you know, who would have sat in a conference room and go, hey, Don't forget we should like figure out how to analyze if a car is about to back out and like, how do we turn around or replan, right? Unless you're actually on the field, you wouldn't know to do that, right? Or what happens when a girl decides to hold on to the machine and just hug it for a selfie? Like, what do we do? Or we had this funny experience back in 2015 where the algorithm was, if you got in the way, it would try to go to the left of you. So if you went to the left, you try to go to the right. If you go to the right, you go to the left. Now you imagine a 10-year-old kid's going to have a field day with that. And so, well, how do you fix that? Well, we, you know, all the engineers pulling their hair out, like, how are we going to get over this problem? And then someone said, just stop. What do you mean just stop? Take away the attraction, like, right? Literally stop the machine, turn off the sound, turn off the lights, and just do nothing. And sit there for three minutes and see what happens. And voila. Right? Somebody knew how to deal with kids. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're, when we were talking about earlier about putting these in society, you, these machines have the same challenge a, a police officer does. A police officer should stand up straight, shiny shoes, command respect and authority, but shouldn't scare a child or grandma. We have a little bit of that same challenge. It needs to be large enough and command enough presence uh, that someone's not going to think twice before they do something silly. But it can't be you know, an ominous thing. So if, if you would have pulled up today and we had 10 of these machines running around here, all painted black with red lights and an, a, more, a very ominous sound and moving 10 times faster, like we wouldn't be having this discussion right now, right? So we had to be very thoughtful on every radius, every surface, every curve, every font, every color that we picked so that you'd have the right psychological view. <laughs> or when you pull into a parking lot, you've never seen one before. Like, I don't know how many accidents we almost had here on our street where the UPS guy is the first time they drove by and they keep looking and they almost crash. It's like, what is that? And then out front here, we've got the, the K1. So this is a stationary unit. 
um, that can do all the detections and uh, stuff that we we're talking about earlier, but is intended for ingress and egress locations. And in the future, we hope to uh, put our concealed weapon detection capability on this machine. So a soft target like uh, the luggage area at an airport or actually an emergency room at a hospital can be very, very problematic in difficult neighborhoods. So we just started, uh, this is a, our first pro first production unit, and um, yes, it, it, it talks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to start, At least you? it was friendly, yeah. So. <laughs> so this is, if you recall, the Nightscope Security Operations Center. Beautiful, so this right. is the user interface. Those are all the deployments uh, across the, the country. Nice. That's all live. And then here, you can route the machine and different patrol schedule. So you can, depending on the time, if it's weekend or Tuesday or what have you, the guards can figure out what to do. Long term, from an AI machine learning standpoint, we want the machines to create their own schedules based on all the data that uh, they've learned over the last few years. Like, okay, actually, I think on Friday at 5 o'clock I should go hang out here instead of doing what you told me, which is go hang out over there where there's nothing going on. We can also run a, a scan of any uh, device in the area. So let's say you're at a, at a data center or someone's trying to do a cyber attack from across the street, uh, we can detect that new router, uh, give you the device ID, how long it's been sitting there, when it was the last seen, how far away is it from the machine. Um, and then you can blacklist that, so if that device ever shows up again, you can send an alert to the guard. If you can want to run a thermal scan, so for most of our clients we set this at uh, 400 degrees, so if it's a high risk of a fire, uh, we can send you an alert. In a couple cases already, we've been able to avoid a mini disaster for one, a couple of our clients where we were able to detect something that obviously shouldn't be that hot, i.e. a pipe was about to blow up or someone left uh, a curly iron in a kiosk at a mall and would have you know, kind of burned down a good portion of the place. Uh, so no human would have been able to do that. Um, we can also, as we we're talking about, uh, we can do parking enforcement um, so we can give you the utilization of your parking lot. So I, I'm, I'm sure 10 years from now, some hedge fund's gonna be asking for this curve. So sort of the Walmart at Christmas parking exactly. lot information. Exactly, what's right. the parking utilization at this particular facility? Or we can run a, a parking meter. So this will give you the uh, top 10 plates that have been sitting in a certain location for a certain period of time. So this vehicle here has been sitting there for seven hours, 44 minutes and 35 seconds. And so we can set that no one's supposed to leave a vehicle more than 24 hours, or if it's a loading area, it's four hours, or um, this is a handicapped spot, or this is an electric vehicle. Why is there? Why have they been charging for you know 27 hours? Somebody go you know go do something with that, um, or you can whitelist everything. So let's say at a school, you could whitelist all the all the mobile devices. You could whitelist uh, all the license plates for the faculty, parents, and students. Anything out of the norm that's not in, that shouldn't be in this quote-unquote sterile environment should get flagged, right? So we uh, we recently announced that uh, due April 20th for all the students out there, we're going to donate half a million dollars worth of services. So we'll we'll put uh, three machines there: a K1, a K3, and a K5 at a school we end up selecting that sends us a compelling essay as to how an autonomous security robot could be utilized in an educational. Uh, institution. So uh, part of that is, you know, we want to do a good deed and, and help. Two is for us to learn. Three, hopefully we inspire some, some students. I mean, if what, what a cool way to get STEM education 
you know, promoted where, you know, they can actually learn a lot through, through the process. So I think that a lot of good will come from that. We've got a lot of uh, initial interest thus far, so I'm super anxious to read all these essays that are coming in. And then over here, if we want to go this way, so that's the KSOC, the Nightscope Security Operations Center for the clients to utilize the technology. Now we started building tools internally here for our network operation center. So uh, you probably know how a data center works. You've got servers in the massive warehouse, basically, and you've got humans, software, and hardware trying to monitor what's going on with everything and making sure down to the millisecond that that server didn't go down, something didn't overheat, something didn't die, whatever it is. Uh, so one of our operation specialists here that runs run this, uh, here 24-7 can uh, uh, log into any of the machines nationwide uh, reset stuff, send software patches, do software upgrades, uh, relocalize a machine, change a path, do something special for a client. If there is an issue with uh, hardware, they can actually send out a technician that's they're on call to us 24-7 to, uh, to go make a repair out in the field if needed. So because we offer this on a machine as a service business model, the hardware, the, the software, the autonomous charging uh, system, all the software upgrades, firmware upgrades, uh, at times hardware upgrades, any maintenance support is all on us, it's all included. Trouble free for the client. Yep, try to make this as easy and simple as possible. And here's the, uh, the slightly clone, louder the clone, production the area, <laughs> but we, we design, we engineer, we build, we deploy and we support. 85% uh, US content and we physically build things uh, here. As you can see a lot of the Machines are here to get uh, upgraded or new machines getting built for the for the next batch uh, That are going to be going out in the field. It's flattering as an entrepreneur for a massive major corporation to ask Very politely is it okay if we put our brand on your machine and it's <laughs> and some of these get super intricate There's one uh, back there. It's going to a, a casino um, And they had a little bit of a field day with how they want their machine to look how long before charging, on average, for the K5? So think of this opposite of your electric car. Between if, charges, I should say. If we ran like your electric car, you drive all day and then you're gonna sit in the garage all night trying to charge, which is not uh, how our clients want to utilize a security technology. Like, they need 24-7. So the machines run for two and a half to three hours and then on, on their own, autonomously go recharge and they'll sit on the charge pad for 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, we ask our clients to put those pads in a prominent location, like uh, where a security guard would normally be or an ingress-egress location, because the machine is still operating, it's just not moving. Um, so we take a, a coffee break, let's say, every two and a half hours. But still, where um, you can see things. Where you can see things, and we're running 24-7. Very impressive. So this was in more prototype fashion the last uh, time I was yeah, here. Yeah, so this is... Uh, our last stop here, this is the K7. So just to recap, we have a K1 that's a stationary unit uh, for ingress-egress locations. A K3 that's uh, four foot tall, two foot wide, 340 pounds, primarily used for indoors. Uh, the K5, which is the most popular model, which is the five foot tall, three foot wide, 400 pounds, primarily for outdoors, although some clients do use it indoors. And then the K7 here, which hasn't shipped yet, we're uh, still in development. Uh, this is a four-wheel version of our technology. 
for multi-terrain use. So think of dirt, gravel, sand, uh, really large perimeters, let's say eight-mile perimeter of, uh, of an airport that today operates with no monitoring, no guards, no anything, and you can just jump over the fence and you're on the tarmac. Or even something as simple as an avocado farmer where they pay the sheriff 50 bucks an hour to patrol their farm because people are stealing their, their crops. Um, or solar farm or wind farm or power utility substation. You know, one of our incoming clients has 3,000 substations that, you know, are, they don't want to pay a guard $28 an hour to stare at a fence in the middle of the desert. Like, you know. I'm, uh, I'm impressed with, you definitely, you clearly take a lot of pride in the design. I mean, that dune buggy, as I'll call it, <laughs> it just doesn't look like a dune. It doesn't look like you strap something together and, and, and just toss it on the road. No, we... It has uh, an aesthetic to it. We try to be thoughtful with the design because, you know, these aren't military products. They need to operate in society. They need to be consistent with, you know, a client's brand. Thanks for coming over to uh, Nightscope headquarters. You're going to pretend you didn't see any of that stuff. <laughs> That's know? right. That's right. Bill, it was such a pleasure. It's Absolutely. a pleasure every time I come here. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having us. Good afternoon. Wasn't this episode inspiring? Keep the inspiration coming. Click subscribe. Subscribe with a little button in your podcast app or click the three dots in the little circle or visit us at gtkpartners.com.